This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Christina Young, and today we're speaking with a Hopi archaeologist about his journey into archaeology and what it means to him to be working on ancestral land. My name is Lyle Balinkwa. I'm from the village of Bakovi on 3rd Mesa, which is on the Hopi Reservation in northeastern Arizona. I am a member of the Greasewood clan, and I've been working as a quote-unquote professional archaeologist here in the Southwest for probably going on 21 years now, maybe a little bit more, but uh, that's my main gig in life right now. Lyle didn't start out wanting to become an archaeologist. In fact, it wasn't something that even occurred to him to pursue, mostly because of the troubled past between indigenous communities and Western archaeology. That was something that had never been considered by me or anybody else in my family or my community just because that field has such a stigma attached to it in terms of its history with indigenous communities. And Hopi has a very strong remembrance of early ethnographers and anthropologists coming to Hopi and how they were uh, very disrespectful in the work and how they did their work. And so that left a bad taste uh, in many of of, uh, the community members. And so it was never ever proposed that that could ever be a career for uh, a Hopi person. After being unsure of what he wanted to study in college and starting to work construction, Lyle learned about a program in Hopi that combined his skills with preservation of the Hopi culture. I was seeking to bring in a new generation of masonry workers to actively preserve and stabilize ancestral sites you know, that were part of our Hopi culture and history. And so I applied to the program and was accepted. And so we spent uh, probably about three months, a whole summer, learning the skills of masonry as it pertains to stabilization and preservation work, which is a little bit different than the concrete and masonry work that I was doing at the time. But it was something that I finally clicked with because uh, I was working with my hands. It was creative and I could see my progress as I went along. And of course, I was being introduced to a large part of who I was or who I am as a Hopi person that cultural history associated with all of these sites out there. I was just wondering, you know, if you could talk about some of the differences as approaching archaeology as a Hopi person, how that is maybe different than your white colleagues or your non-Hopi colleagues. You know, when, when I was in the university going through that process of learning what anthropology was about, we were always shown, you know, these old black and white photos of these old white dudes with beards, you know, standing at some archaeology site. And those were supposedly the heroes or the, the leaders of, you know, archaeology and anthropology. And I had a hard time identifying with that, you know, because, of course, they, they did lay the foundations of much of the scientific work that we as archaeologists now follow in to some degree. But they were the outsiders looking at this kind of exotic timeless culture, you know, that was rooted only in that black and white photograph. Whereas I knew every time I came back to Hopi, participating in ceremonies, going out to our cornfields and helping my dad and uncles plant our our fields, uh, there was that realization that we're still here, that we're a living culture. And that's a big part of what I was always taught is that 
we're not disconnected so much from our past. You know, it's not just something that happened in 1800 and it stays there. Those events and histories that did happen in the past still have repercussions and still have influence in terms of who we are as modern day indigenous people. So that's how I try to approach the work that I do in archaeology is that I'm not looking at a site that is devoid of humanity or even even a living presence. You know, I think many of my indigenous colleagues will always state that uh, there, there is a presence there, you know, that there is a, a living uh, energy associated with these sites and that they're not just simply there to record and move on and put a number on it. You know, when we do our ceremonies here at Hopi, the songs, the prayers, even those activities, those agricultural activities, what we're doing is we are actively continuing, you know, these traditions that have never been broken. And so there's this long, continuous process of who we are, and we can look back at these ancestral sites and see where we've been and where we've come from. And so that's kind of the values that I try and instill when I do my archaeology work. And, and what I try and impart to, you know, my non-Indigenous colleagues is that these are more than just places that have potential for scientific information that these are places in which that we as indigenous people can still go back to. What I'm getting at is that, you know, within our oral traditions, we, we speak of these long epic migrations of Hopi clans that have crisscrossed across the Southwest and other regions. Those get handed down generation to generation. So even though as, as modern day Hopi people were living here in Northeastern Arizona, our traditions speak of these distant areas that we as, as a contemporary person may have never been to yet. But when we do have the opportunity to go and visit those places, we know what they're talking about. We know what to expect when we get there. And so that, that connection is maintained within our cultural traditions. And so it's, it's about, you know, that living culture thing is that we're able to connect to these places in a much broader, deeper, complex way. You know, it's, it's not just assigning a, a site number to it and doing artifact analysis and writing a report and moving on. It's really about remembering who we are and where we've come from. And so it's really important for us, you know, in, in terms of remembering and being able to visit those sites again. And it's, it's somewhat difficult, you know, to say it's black and white in terms of Western archaeology versus indigenous archaeology. It's, it's more of uh, something that I have to show them how it's done, you know, in terms of how I interact with these sites, but always trying to reiterate to my colleagues, my non-Indigenous colleagues, that these places uh, do have a living presence, that they do have maintain a, a living connection for us, you know, as, as modern Hopi people. And so it's really about expressing that, those values, those beliefs, those teachings, and how we would like to see these places managed into the future based off of our understanding that they do deserve protection, that they are continually a part of who we are. And so that's important in, in my work to be able to continually express, you know, to, to anybody I work with. In that work that you're doing and in, in expressing these perspectives, how has the response been? Have you, have you seen people <clears throat> respond to it and change over time and, and understandings, or has there been resistance as there sometimes can be in, in academic cultures? I think presently and going forward, there's definitely more uh, positive reflection and change about 
the indigenous perspective regarding our own ancestral past out there on the landscape. And so there may be a little bit of resistance, you know, from time to time from individuals. The social justice movements that have been ongoing have really bolstered and motivated us as indigenous archaeologists to be more vocal and have our voice be heard and, and not only just be heard, but have our values incorporated within you know, formal management practices and things of that nature. So it's, it's definitely become much larger in terms of our indigenous presence and how much influence and impact we can have. And I'm hoping that that's something that continues as we move forward. It just takes this kind of two-way conversation that we have with ourselves, our communities, and those from the outside to educate you know, and help everybody learn the values that we carry with us in terms of how we view our ancestral past. You're really touching on an important issue too within this when it's it's not just about archaeology as a discipline, but also about management and including the the Hopi and larger, you know, indigenous perspective into management. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk about that and you know what it would really look like to you to have that Hopi perspective incorporated in in how the management is done. I, I can think of a very good you know, example that uh, has been ongoing when I, when I started in the park service, but really is very uh, evident nowadays. And so uh, this past summer, uh, I was fortunate to be able to be part of some conservation slash stabilization slash preservation work. It all means the same thing, depending on which agency you're working for. They like to pick whichever term is applicable, but we were actively out there preserving ancestral sites in southeastern Utah. And part of that process, there's a big change in terms of how we do it, why we do it, and the materials we use. And so if you look at the very early history of preservation work here in the United States, particularly within the National Park Service, you can go to Mesa Verde, Chaco, a lot of these major sites, and see examples of early preservation work and how they were utilizing materials that were foreign in terms of Portland cement, steel rebar, uh, they were possibly really big on the idea of reconstruction. So they were actively rebuilding some of these sites according to what they thought it may have looked like. And so for a good period of time, that was how this practice was carried out uh, here in the Southwest in terms of preserving these areas. And we've come to see that the use of foreign materials, the idea of reconstruction really has negative consequences for the structures themselves, you know, the structures you have to think of are pretty much organic in their nature, even though they're built of stone, there's a lot of organic material incorporated into it. And so being organic, uh, there's this philosophy that uh, within Hopi that speaks of these structures as being living entities, you know, that we gather these materials from the earth, the, the stone, the, the soil, the wood beams that are incorporated in here, and they're, they're assembled uh, to serve a purpose. And so they have a life cycle. They're born out of the earth. Uh, they serve their purpose. And then once that purpose is done, they should be allowed to return back to the earth from where they came. And so the use of foreign materials like Portland cement, steel rebar, were really going against that idea. It was not allowing that process to continue. And so it's kind of, uh, you know, something that we've dealt with a lot within the preservation world. So when I look at the work that we did this summer, you talk, you ask about how are these values incorporated within 
the management process, well, we've completely reversed in some ways or changed how we approach the preservation process. And so the sites we were working on, we were using, for the most part, unamended soils, you know, meaning that there were soils and mortar that were gathered from around the sites, not within the sites themselves, but close enough that they were a good match. Sometimes we do have to add uh, an amender to it. And a lot of times that's based on how much visitor traffic of a, a site is receiving. And so some sites are receiving way more visitation than others. And so that amended mortar just gives it a little bit more a lifespan, but it still erodes naturally. So it's very different from Portland cement that hardens and really doesn't erode at all. It, it has a different characteristic all to itself. And so that throws a little bit of a curveball in, in terms of how we address these preservation issues. But we can seek to, to find uh, ways that are compatible you know, with Indigenous values. Moving forward, how would you like to see these perspectives incorporated? I would like to see more Indigenous archaeologists out there. And we were fortunate to have with us during our project work crews from the Ancestral Lands Conservation Crew, which is an Indigenous conservation program that brings Indigenous people from various communities into this type of work. And they do all kinds of, of work out there. But we have two crews from Zuni and another crew out of Albuquerque. And so these were all young Indigenous people. Uh, it was great to be able to work with them and introduce to them this idea of indigenous archaeology and get them to think about possibly a career in in this field but what they can contribute to it and so it's about increasing that presence within the field itself and so i think by the time we get to writing management plans we should already be thinking about what are those indigenous values that we can incorporate into the field that are in real time uh, hands-on you know, that can be shown as examples of how management plans and other, you know, kinds of technical documents can reflect those values that we carry as Indigenous people. So it's about the real life work, but also increasing the capacity and opportunities for Indigenous people to enter into these fields and be comfortable about doing the work that, that we are asking them to do. You mentioned visitation in there. And I wanted to ask you some questions around, around visitation. You know, visitation to the whole region is increasing, as, as we know. And we've seen really horrific examples of damage to ancestral sites and cultural sites here in Moab specifically. And, and I just wanted to hear, you know, some of the challenges that you see with visitation and also some of the opportunities that you might see to, to, change, to change the behavior when visiting ancestral lands. Visitation is the biggest impact that we are seeing right now in terms of, you know, some of the most of the archaeology sites. Uh, and I'm speaking, you know, strictly from my experience uh, within southeastern Utah more recently. The first site that we worked on is a well-known site called River House, and it's located along the San Juan River just outside of Bluff, Utah. And I was first introduced to the site in 2007 uh, when I started river guiding in the area. And back then, the river was really the only way that you could access this site, you know, uh, easily. There was a road there, but it was really primitive, or you had to backpack in, you know, to get to the site. So while we were there now, one of the reasons why this site was chosen for 
uh, conservation work was that it had been over 40 years since its prior conservation work had been done there. But the BLM is now estimating that anywhere up to 20,000 visitors are going to that site on an annual basis, which is a huge number. And so even for me, it was a bit overwhelming, you know, on some days to be there at the site doing our work and just seeing the amount of traffic that comes in every day. And of course, come, some of it is coming from the river, but a lot of it is coming from uh, OHV traffic now because the road uh, has been improved upon. Uh, it's well known, of course, now. Um, and so the amount of people coming in and out of the site uh, was, was very large and, and to me kind of unexpected. We're seeing that across the board now, of course, with, with sites, uh, not just in southeastern Utah, but you know, across the Southwest in general. One of the ways that we, that I could say that we are able to address that issue is, is by that education. Every morning while we were out at Riverhouse, one of us would have to be designated as kind of like crowd control because inevitably when you have all the large groups coming in, they have questions about what are you doing why are you doing it? And, you know, what does it entail? And so one of us would, you know, be chosen to speak to those crowds, you know, on a daily basis in terms of answering all those questions. And I think that goes a long way in terms of having that face-to-face -face interaction, you know, in terms of educating people and letting them know what's going on out there, letting them know that, yes, they as visitors are a part of the issue, but they can also be a part of the, the solution. You know, and that's education, that's learning proper site etiquette, that's learning about the, the modern day indigenous connections that we still maintain with those places. And so that they have a broader understanding of it's not just it, it's not an amusement park, per se, you know, that it has much more meaning behind it and to it than than what they may get at first glance. Part of that is also increasing or improving the public education on site in terms of the interpretive signage. Riverhouse is another good example. The, the, the interpretive signage that is there, or maybe they've changed it by now, but that has been there was a brochure from 2008, I believe, that had been cut up, you know, and uh, taped to the interpretive board behind some plexiglass that hasn't aged very well. And so it's not just about talking about it in the past tense, but also, again, continually uh, reinforcing that idea that this is a, is a continued connection for indigenous people and so that they can actually see that interpreted signage as well and so things like that I think can go a long way in helping to educate the public who come to these areas who may not have any understanding of what they're looking at why it's there or why they should care about it you know and so um, there's there's different things that that need to happen and to see better results. Would you be able to briefly walk walk me through what site etiquette really is generally? <clears throat> When it comes to site etiquette in terms of visiting a site, I, I always tell people that you need to come with an understanding of respect for these areas. And it may just be the general idea of that you are entering somebody else's home. You know, when you go and visit somebody else's house, hopefully you don't just go in and, and act, you know, any old way uh, that you see is, is okay, that you have some restraint or have the opportunity to understand what is what this place represents and so we ask that you know when you enter these places it's it's like going into a holy space for us it's a holy space where ancestors dwell and so we ask that you you give it that level of respect 
I, I tell people, you know, to speak softly, tread lightly and visit with much respect because that'll set kind of the tone of how you interact with these places. They're not amusement parks for everybody to just kind of climb all over the place and do whatever. But uh, if we treat them right, you know, they've been there for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. And if we treat them right and show them that respect, they'll still have that longevity in educating others and allowing us as Indigenous people to be able to reflect back on who we are. Lyle, thank you so much for taking the time and for this conversation and for, um, yeah, sharing sharing your perspectives with us. Yeah, thank you again. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. This episode of Science Moab was sponsored by the STEM Action Grant from the Society for Science. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Social media is by Sophia Fisher. Newsletter by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.